Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, diggers. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Christian Swain here, and I am the rock and roll archaeologist behind the mic in San Francisco, out in the field, and all up in your earbuds. Thank you for joining us. In Deeper Digs, we go a little further, dig a little deeper into specific topics that tie in with rock and roll history, the music, the culture, and the technology. It's the companion show to our episodic overview of rock history, the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. If you're not listening to our main podcast, well, you should. Our whole family of rock and roll podcasts can be found at rockandrollarchaeology.com, along with show notes, playlists, social media links, and, of course, the donate link if you'd like to help out. So thank you. All right, let's get to it. Rose and flows of angel hair and ice cream castles in the air and feather canyons everywhere looked at clouds that way but now they so we have another in-depth interview with a wonderfully superb author today, Mr. David Yaffe. We're going to discuss David's newest book, Reckless Daughter, a portrait of Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell is, uh, without a doubt, one of the greatest musical talents of our time. Her body of work is buried, rich, and complex, and always, always compelling. David Yaffe is an associate professor of the humanities at Syracuse University. And he's met and interviewed Joni on several different occasions over the years. Reckless Daughter is his third book. Reckless Daughter is uh, more of a character study than a straight biography, and we really enjoyed it. Uh, Professor Yaffe did his homework. All, all the basics are there. Joni's early life, her family, how she started out in music and all that. But David steps well beyond the who, what, when, and where in this book. Like the woman it portrays, Reckless Daughter has a lot of heart and intelligence. It's complex, multi-layered, and full of surprises. It's a great read. So, let's get to it and meet Professor David Yaffe and talk about Reckless Daughter, a portrait of Joni Mitchell. Turn me on, and the radio 
Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, David Yaffe. Thank you for having me. So, first question. <laughs> Do you think it'd be fair to compare Joni Mitchell as the feminine counterweight to Bob Dylan's masculinity in rock mm. music? In other words, uh, should Joni also receive a Nobel Prize in literature? Well, of course, I think her body of, of work would, would deserve any major award, including a Nobel Prize. The idea of a feminine counterweight is I, not exactly the way I would put it, although I see why you put it that way. But, um, well, Joni doesn't like being genderized. She said that. Okay. Um, and, and in fact, there's something that Dylan said about her that she really liked. It was in an interview in Rolling Stone. I think it was in 87. And... Dylan was complaining about how female performers whore themselves. Okay. Wow. And I know. I know. I, this is like still kind of coming off of the evangelical period. Oh, yeah. Like that. And and then the interviewer, it might have been Kurt Loder. I don't remember. Who the, but the interviewer said, uh, but what about Joni Mitchell? And then Dylan said, well, Joni Mitchell is sort of like a man. <laughs> and when Joni heard that, she was very amused by that. She kind of liked that he said that about her. I could see um, that. So the the feminine version of Dylan, oh, well, here's another thing that I would say about that. Joni was definitely influenced by a certain pocket of Bob Dylan's work as a lyricist, but not as a musician. Mm -hmm. Joni's music doesn't sound anything like Bob Dylan's music. No, it's no. Just, it's just the lyrics. Well, Joni Mitchell, Mitchell's music doesn't sound like anybody. It's, it doesn't uh, sound like anybody. Totally we can unique. talk about that. Yeah. And we, we will. We can talk and about that, too. Yes, yes. I mean, but, but her musical influences are completely different than her lyric influences. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But lyrically, lyric she is, is, yeah, she is uh, in the early period uh, uh, influenced a bit by uh, by Mr. Zimmerman, wouldn't you say? You hear you hear more Leonard Cohen than Bob Dylan, really. Yeah, but, two Canadians, but right? You, but you... But, so, I mean, the thing that she always said, even when she trashed him in other ways, is that she always said that in 1965, see, people had been talking up Dylan for a while, right? In folk circles, see, people were worshiping Dylan. Oh, and yeah. she didn't, and she, and she didn't go along with it at first because she thought that he was a Woody Guthrie imitator. <laughs> which in some ways he was. <laughs> and which, you know, so she didn't hear the originality in it, but by the time she heard Positively 4th Street, she did hear the originality in it. Mm -hmm. And she thought, oh my God, now we can write about anything. Now you can put anything into a song. And and um, so Joni loves bringing it all back home. Highway 61, Blonde on Blonde, and Blood on the Tracks. Those are the ones that she really loves. Mm. Yeah, but, but, well, she, but she loves the New York sessions of Blood on the Tracks, not the Minnesota sessions. Ah, all right. And Joe, Joe Bernstein gave her an acetate of those New York sessions. Now everybody in the world has them because of YouTube. <laughs> but it used to yeah. be. That, that was a, that that was was a special thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in the day. Right, was, right. She had it out a reel to reel. Oh. And it was this prized thing that she had that she'd gotten from Joe Bernstein. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so she had this party one night. And she said, 
it was such a big party that the Los Angeles Times reported that like if a bomb had to hit Johnny Mitchell's house, then the entire entertainment industry would be gone. <laughs> yeah, on that night. Oh, really? Oh, okay. All right. And she said, you wouldn't believe the crashers. And like Bowie crashed it. Robin Williams crashed it. All these people crashed it. And, and Dylan crashed it. And so, so Joni had that acetate playing, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so she's, she's in the garden with Bob and she said in, in the, you know, in the, in the courtyard by the pool. And, and she said, um, why didn't you release this? And he said, somebody stole the tape. <laughs> and you have it. <laughs> which, which, I, I, which, I, which I can't, I mean, that, that was, wow. whatever that was. And, and, and so, um, and then, and then, and then the real, the real disappeared and she never got to hear it again. Well, and I told her, I said, oh, I have, I have it. She said, you have it? I said, yes, yes, I have it. I have it on a CD. But, but, but anybody can listen to it now on YouTube. Right, right. Yeah. For free. Yep. 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 Yeah. Yeah. And there's the music business today. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right yeah. So let, let's tell uh, the diggers uh, a little bit about uh, yourself. Um, this is your mm-hmm. third book, Exploring Music mm-hmm. of the 20th Century. Uh, you did do a mm-hmm. book on Bob Dylan, uh, like mm-hmm. a complete no- unknown from uh, 2011, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. Fascinating Rhythm from 2005. So w- what? first question, what, what was the formative musical moment in your life that spurred you on to this, this work? Well, my first real obsession, I mean, when I was a very young child, I was obsessed with certain musicals, but I fell really hard for the Beatles and my parents were of the generation of Beatle fans, but they were not Beatle fans. Hmm. Uh, so I got into that on my own. So it wasn't around I mean, the house. It was not around the house. They had most of the records. My, my father's records were classical and it was mostly Mozart and Bach. Mm-hmm. And, and my mother's records were mostly Broadway show tunes, but they're like, you know, original Broadway cast soundtracks. That that was between the two of them, and then like she had tapestry. There were a few things. Carol King. She had Keith Jarrett at the Colin concert, mm-hmm. but it was but th- th- those were exceptions. And a uh, little klezmer, you know. And this was when you know, like getting a record was a big deal, just to have a record. Oh, the cost associated, yeah, going yes. down to the store and deciding which one was the, the most important thing. one, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, because you all only had students. that amount of money, right? Yes, that's right. And all my students have streaming, and so all they, <laughs> they know is understand. a world where they have they have everything that's ever been made. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and so obviously that's a totally different world. There was no YouTube. There was none of that. So, but they did have. The, the original, the, the, the soundtracks to The Graduate and Hard Day's Night. So it was the American Hard Day's Night. Oh, and, so that's uh, what you found. You found Hard Day's so Night. So I knew those. And then, and then of course, I had the radio. Mm-hmm. And classic rock radio, that, that format begins in 1980. Mm-hmm. And so if you grew up, I grew up in Dallas. So you grew up in a place like Dallas in the 80s, like I did. Then if you listen to the classic rock radio, then everybody knows the same songs. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you grew up at a certain time, everybody knows the same Eagles songs. Yeah. 
the same Springsteen, the same Billy Joel, the same Stones, the same Who, the same Beatles, whatever. Yeah, they're playing you in, know, the, in the cars. Every car you get into. Yes, uh, and you yeah. didn't have, and you didn't know, but you didn't have to own it to know it because mm-hmm. they played the same songs all the time. Bob, Bob Seger, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. It's the same stuff yeah. all the time. Yeah. And so, yeah. but of course, my parents weren't listening. The age of the program. Right, right. But yeah, but yeah. they, but but that that music was not on the radio mm-hmm. in the car. So anyway, for some reason. I, I had a little bit of money from my grandparents for my eighth birthday and I got the Beatles revolver album. Oh, wow. The American, the American version. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, which is minus three John songs. Mm-hmm. And I, I became this completely obsessed Beatle, you know, young scholar of the Beatles. I was, I was so, I, I mean, I just, I couldn't get enough of it. And the same thing with Simon and Garfunkel. And um, I would say... Those well, that, my, that makes the, sense because you yeah. mentioned The Graduate as the other album. Yeah, that's right. And so, that's right. And so, and, and so when I was 10, I was this weird kid that was into this stuff. And I didn't know any other kids my age that were into this stuff. And um, I was in a theater uh, camp in the summer. I was in a theater production. And the stage manager for the production was 16, and she was also obsessed with the Beatles. And no, so you she bonded. Could, so we bonded, and she, we were both weird, and like we both didn't get along with people our age. <laughs> well, you were theater and kids. So. I was a theater, so, she took, so, she, so she took me on as, 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 as her little protege. Right, right, right. And a kindred we, we had this spirit, idea, right. We were kindred spirits, and we had this idea of, writing a Beatle book together. Ooh. Oh, mm, that might be, uh, that might be the answer to my last question. Okay. All I, mean, right. I mean, I thought I would be the first 10 year old to write a book. <laughs> well, right. <laughs> Lofty goals. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So in some ways my, my life is overdetermined that way. <laughs> All right. Well, like a lot of people in, uh, in music and, uh, uh, and have an interest in a passion of, of music, it always seems to start with the Beatles somewhere along the road. Yeah. 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 yeah and, 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 and it's, and my students love the Beatles. Almost all of them, they love the Beatles. They're, everybody, they're the almost everybody loves the Beatles. So, I mean, Most yes, they're, people, I mean, they're, they're every, you know, there's always a contrarian that, uh, you know, can give you some reason why uh, the Beatles are shite. Um, of course, their arguments usually do do not stand uh, with well, scrutiny. The, the, well, <laughs> Leonard, Leonard Cohen was not impressed with the Beatles. Well, um, it was not. And, and, and neither was Lou Reed. Uh, true, true, but uh, you know, to each their own. Um, each their own. But I, mean, I think it's because they, they think so much in, in in terms of lyrics. Yeah, and so they're and, not going to be seduced by the harmonies and the chords and all these other right, magical things right, that are right. going on. They're, right. they're, they're not. They're not so fixated on the ambiance. Oh, well, it's, it's all it's, whole. It's all whole, and the Beatles seem it to is. have it they're, all. They're looking at lyrics, and but then it was interesting because yeah. Lou Reed did say because he always trashed the Beatles, but then he said. When John Lennon went solo and he made that song "Mother," that was one of the greatest songs I ever heard. And if uh, you look at, listen to that song and you listen to it up against some of those songs in Berlin, you think that I can see why Lou Reed loves the song. Right. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and then musical theater. You mm. did you you had a love affair mm. with uh, with Broadway? Then I take it. Well, I just I mean I just love the Great American Songbook. Yeah. Yeah, you and can't so, beat that. So when I say musical theater, I generally mean 
uh, I mean, there are exceptions, but I generally mean like up to Stephen Sondheim. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Rod, I don't Rogers think Stephen Sondheim. Well, you, yeah. I mean, I don't think Sondheim has any peers in his age group. And but then before Sondheim, of course, you have like all of this great stuff yeah, before Cole rock Porter. and roll. Yeah, yeah. Cole Porter, right? Of course, yeah, and, yeah. and and Rogers and Hart, Rogers and Hammerstein. Um, um, Harold Arlen and Yip Harburg, you know, Duke Ellington. Oh, God. Um, yeah. Just, you know, the Great American Songbook. I mean, it, it's it's such, it has a different kind of beauty than the beauty that came later. It's it's just different, and it has more harmonic sophistication. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's why it, it, it gave jazz musicians the, the, the perfect template. Yeah, all of this you explored uh, in your in your your book, fascinating rhythms. So. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's get to uh, "Reckless Daughter," a portrait mm-hmm. of Joni Mitchell. Uh, and this this book is like built around a series of of interviews, and mm-hmm. and then uh, through her uh, her songs and her albums uh, throughout mm-hmm. her entire career. You don't just focus on the, you know, what the the, the uh, folky period or the blue period, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which mm-hmm. is the, her most famous uh, periods. But you go through the the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So now I, I believe this was a, a 10 year effort. You, you met her first in mm-hmm. 2007. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. So how did that go? Uh, how, how, how mm-hmm. did you get to do that? Well, I, I'd been playing a long game with Joni for a while. I'd oh. been, I'd had her on Google alert about as long as there was such a thing as Google alert. So most, she had retired from music. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't much to follow. Until one day I saw this item, I think in the Vancouver Sun, that said that uh, she was collaborating with the Alberta Ballet and uh, for a ballet based on her music, and that uh, she was contributing new songs, which was a huge deal because she hadn't done new songs since 1997. Yeah, 10 years. Yes, which is just an eternity in the music business. Oh, God, yeah. And, uh, I mean, think about it, the, the Beatles' entire career was eight years. <laughs> yeah, recording career, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you just uh, think of it that way, yeah, the yeah. recording career. Yeah. Right. And, and, and so, and nobody thought she would write new, new music again, including her. And so she was surprised as anybody else. And so mm-hmm. I thought, oh, my God, this is a huge story. And so I got the New York Times, I got an assignment from the New York Times. And, uh, you know, they flew me to Los Angeles and we met and, <laughs> Our first conversation uh, lasted twelve hours. And wow! It would have lasted. It would have lasted longer, but um, I had a plane to catch. <laughs> it was, uh, Joni. I have to leave. I know you want to continue the right. conversation, she, but she drove me. She drove me to my hotel. Oh, very nice. I know. She drove me to my hotel. I ran in. I packed. I got on a plane. And there began the the beginning of this book. You, you yes. also had access to many other notables and got to interview them as well, right? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Many of her uh, of her lovers and her producers yes. uh, and friends uh, going back uh, from the the very beginning. Well, so. I, I mean, it's true that there there was one person who was both a lover and a friend and a producer, and that was David Crosby, right? Because he produced her first album, yeah, Song to a Seagull. Her second album uh, had only one production credit because she was assigned Paul Rothschild, the Doors producer. Mm-hmm. And but they, she reminded him of a piano teacher that would wrap around the knuckles with a ruler. 
<laughs> you know, I mean, it was torture. They, they recorded this one track called Tin Angel. And, uh, and then he said, I gotta go, I gotta go for three weeks to produce the doors. And he was gone. And she turns to the engineer, the Swiss guy named Henry Louis. And she said, do you think we could produce, we could make the rest of this album before it gets back. And, and they did. And they did. Right. Right. And, 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 and um, and that album won a Grammy for best folk album. And his name was attached to it just because of that one track. And then she went on to just work with Henry. Now that was an interesting relationship because Henry, she took the title of engineer, but on one of those albums, I think it was hissing of summer lawns. It said Henry more than an engineer, Louie, mm. because he was more than an engineer. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, um, he actually took the points on his contract that a producer would take. He just didn't, he, she didn't want the name producer on the albums. And, and this came back to Hunter later, later in the eighties, uh, the, the New York board of I mean, the California board of equalization went after her for being an artist without any protection for being an independent contractor. Oh really? There's no producer. Yes, and 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 so they they um they they tried to really squeeze her, and she appealed twice. And by the second appeal, she won, but she'd spent a ton of money on lawyers to do that. And um, so that she was punished for that independence. Right. Oh, and, which... if, if, <laughs> you know, if she had just said on the, the on the record, she could have made the exact same record. Yep. the exact amount of freedom, and 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 if it just said on there produced by Henry Louie, none of this would have happened. Right? That that wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, well, and he he was a producer. I mean, he he produced Joan Baez. He produced all kinds of people. He produced the Mamas and the Papas. He, you know, you have all these records that say produced by Henry Louie. It wouldn't have killed her to say produced by Henry Louie because he was wonderful to work with. Mm-hmm. And, and he knew exactly how to communicate with her. They had a wonderful working relationship. It was beautiful. But uh, she just wanted to be independent, and didn't yeah, she wanted to. Right. She, uh, wanted she just so badly. wanted to make that point uh, yeah. on the album. Yeah, which, <laughs> which my next question literally is, mm-hmm. you know, I I know it's from one of her lesser known albums, mm-hmm. but why the title "Reckless Daughter"? But I think we mm-hmm. just answered the question. Oh, well, and on and on and on, you know, <laughs> her, her parents were these conservative, quiet, provincial, central Canadians who just didn't want to attract too much attention to themselves. They're very modest people. Mm-hmm. And they begat Joni. <laughs> <laughs> they were very proud of her. Of course, they're extremely proud of her, but she is not they, like them. They, I mean, I mean, I mean, they, oh my God. I mean, just over and over again. I mean, and so there was a part of her that wanted to please her parents, but then there was a bigger part of her that needed to be independent and do things exactly her way, you know? And, and if people were uncomfortable with it, that was just too bad. Yeah. Damn the torpedoes, uh, regardless of the the consequences. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, as we just talked about with the producer credit, uh, that's, yeah sort of reckless right there. It turned out to be reckless. Yes, it was. And mm-hmm. I guess if she knew that they would do that to her, then she would have had produced by Henry Louis. Or maybe... Maybe not. About <laughs> it. Well, you, you know you know what she should have done? Is that she should have said, just said, 
produced by Joni Mitchell and Henry Louis. Yeah. Yeah. That, come on. It, yeah. I'm sure that if she had known that she would have had to go through that, she probably could have taken a, a co-producer credit. Right. Right. Which, right. which is legit, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Because oh, yeah. she, you know, she, cause she staged everything, mm-hmm. but she needed him for the technical stuff. Uh, yeah, in the studio. Yeah, actually studio. Mo- moving moving the uh, the dials and the levers. All right, definitely. Everything, yeah, yeah, everything, yeah. and getting all yeah. the levels exactly mm-hmm. right, all mm-hmm. of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah the engineering side and, of things. And definitely. He, and he got such amazing sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for and, and, for and, simple and, simple a simple sound, uh, but yeah, it, uh, uh, all of those songs hold up so well, uh, especially in the oh, age yeah. that they were recorded. Uh, so it's, oh, it's yeah. amazing to listen to some of them. So, so it seems there are, are are a few events that formed the early quote unquote Joni Mitchell. Um, you know, her growing up as we just talked about on the Canadian prairie. Having mm-hmm. polio at 10 years old, her mm-hmm. marriage to Chuck Mitchell, and probably the most impactful, uh, giving up a daughter to adoption mm-hmm. in 1965, just mm-hmm. before she, she found fame. Would you, would you say that's fair to say? All of those things are, are important. Every one of those things. I mean, I mean, with the polio, I mean, she was told that she wouldn't walk again. And she, she shared a room with a boy who died. Oh, wow. So just, just at to, 10. And, and, at and, 10. At 10, and, yeah. and her father never visited. Her mother only visited once with a mask. Mm-hmm. And so she had to find this resilience early on. And she, and she, she, her mother brought a Christmas tree, and she prayed to the Christmas tree. Uh, she had broken with the church, and so she didn't know who to pray to. So she just prayed right to the tree. And she'd broken with the church because she, she wasn't getting her questions answered. Mm-hmm. Uh, said, I like I, I like stories, but I feel like the, this book is pages ripped out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Bible itself. The Bible. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and, yeah. Yeah. Very true. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, she said to she she said to the Sunday school teacher, um, I have an Eve for the first people, right? Right. And then they had Cain and Abel, right? Right. And then Cain killed Abel, right? Right. Uh, so then, who did Cain marry? Eve. <laughs> Now, she wasn't no. saying this to be a brat. She, no, she it's didn't just, know that's it. the logical conclusion. That's right. Like, she didn't know what incest was. <laughs> no, you know, but, but, uh, but where else are you going to turn? They were so offended. And then of she course. was like, she was done with the church. And so then, so, so, but now she, here she is, and so she doesn't have anyone to pray to. So she prays to the tree. And she says to the tree, give me my legs back, and I'll make it up to you. I don't know how. But I will somehow make it up to you. Just give me my legs back. Just don't make me be a cripple. Mm. Give me my legs back. And uh, you know, this boy died. And 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 but before he died, she would keep her spirits up by singing, and he would throw things at her for singing. Really? But that was yes. That was her first audience. <laughs> so, uh, and so, when, so when he wasn't back, a fan was, of that uh, of that soprano voice then. <laughs> yeah, whatever it was that she was singing, you know, she was singing like Christmas songs or whatever yeah. it was that was getting her spirit up at the time. Yeah, and um, and so she did get her legs back, and she did come back to school. But then she was no longer the first one picked for the teams. Yeah, because she, she was quite athlete. athletic beforehand, right? She yeah. had been quite yeah. athletic, and so yeah. that was now over and so she had to find another way to distinguish herself and so she became an artist mm-hmm. and she drew more inward and so she said the polio made her be an artist do you know what i mean like yeah she so 
we might not have Johnny Mitchell without that. No, no, no. Which, which is just incredible. I mean, and it starts with visual art. Yeah, she's before, a painter first, right. She's a painter first before mm-hmm. it goes to music. But all of this stuff, it's just one thing happened, then another, then another. And it now looks like the creation myth, though, of course, it didn't feel like that at all at the time. And um, it just felt like life was throwing her things, and all she could do was, you know, be herself. It's really remarkable. It's remarkable. There's, there's just nothing like this story. And so, um, so, so, the, so first she had the polio, and then the second, of course, was giving up her daughter. Yeah. Um, because it was something that was devastating to her, and she couldn't talk about it. And then she ends up in an unhappy marriage. Yeah, the Chuck Mitchell. And she couldn't talk about that either. Mm-hmm. And so all of these things poured into these beautiful songs. Okay, we were talking about the Beatles earlier. Now, you know, John... So, so Paul lost his mother when he was 14. Yep. John lost his at mother mm-hmm. at 16. Mm-hmm. And and Paul got to meet Julia. Yeah. He remembered Julia. He got mm-hmm. to see her and play ukulele and sing in his high-pitched voice. Anyway, so they they both lose their parents. They both lose their mothers. And there are yeah, there's an emotional liver- bond between the two of them. Uh, well, but the thing undeniable. is that there, there are these tough kids in Liverpool in the fifties where you did not talk about your feelings. Mm-hmm. So, but they rather could, than talk about it, they, could they sing poured it into this music. They mm-hmm. poured it into this beautiful music and made these beautiful harmonies with each other. That's, that's where it went. And so, so Joni did the same and thing. Joni did the same thing. Mm-hmm. She, mm-hmm. she, you know, she couldn't talk about giving up her daughter. She couldn't talk about how miserable she was in her marriage. And she poured it into these songs, these beautiful mm-hmm. songs. And so if you were to look at 1965, she gives birth February 19th, 1965 to Kaloran. And it was only after that that she began to write songs. She wrote, there was, she wrote one song on the train from um, probably from Calgary to Toronto with the guy who knocked her up. His name was um, Brad McMath. They called him Moochie because he would always come over to Mooch. <laughs> he would always come over where they're making supper. Right. So they called him Moochie. One day, Moochie and Joni were alone in the apartment together, and Joni was tired of being the last virgin in art school. And one thing led to another. And she got pregnant. First time. That's what she said, the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so, uh, I, I, that's obviously the, 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 the point of uh, the nexus point of, of where, where she goes uh, uh, to becoming Joni Mitchell, because you know, we can look at it now uh, because, uh, you know, this was all a secret until 1997, I believe. Uh, uh, that's right. The, the, the daughter. And, right. you know, when at, at the time and, you know, I can remember the, the Joni Mitchell songs. And now I listen back to them with that knowing that fact. And it takes on a whole different resonance. Oh, I know. It's like amazing that we, we missed it. Yeah, I mean, yeah it is. I mean, it is I, yeah. You like go. Well, that was obvious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, whereas, you know, let's face it, the Chuck Mitchell uh, uh, thing, the divorce, uh, you know, uh, you know, a controlling man, a patern- um, uh, patriarchal uh, society that uh, was was expected at that time. Uh, th- those things are you, you can see that and you can you can feel some of that in the music. But but definitely, uh, you know, giving you know, a, a baby up for adoption uh, and that being secret throughout her entire career. You know, it's funny, we talked a little bit before that 
in 2007 when you met it had been 10 years since mm -hmm. she mm -hmm. had actually put any music out and 1997 well, was the year that, of them. that yeah she'd done um two orchestral albums oh uh, yeah yeah uh, uh, of of her material right it's like one was a great american songbook uh, and the yes. other was like a recasting her, yeah. her songs Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, she had a contractual obligation, so those were those are contractual. Because she wasn't writing, so the, that's how she fulfilled her contract. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, that's where the uh, the that newer version of uh, both sides both now sides comes now. from. Yeah, that's right. yeah. Well, it's from right. there. In fact, used in the Christmas uh, movie Love Actually. Uh, that's right. So. That's right. A lot of people know the song from that. In fact. Yeah, yeah, these, yeah. These days, these yeah, days, people yeah, know that. Yeah, yeah, especially yeah, people people definitely under uh, a certain age uh, would that's right, say that's, that's right. What, they, what they, they, they didn't know what a big monster that song was. <laughs> right, right, right. Especially, especially the Judy Collins version, which is a huge uh, yeah. monster. Yeah, that was that was. When, a, and and, a and you know, she could hear that that song was a hit. Joni thought that that song was good, but she didn't know she'd written a hit. She really didn't, and she never tried to write a hit that's not the kind of writer she was no i mean she would sometimes respond for like you turn me on on my radio was like a parodic version of a hit mm -hmm. for geffen but it's it's amazing like when you think about say paul simon paul simon could consciously yeah. be aware that he was writing right, yeah. a big fat hit mm -hmm. when he wrote bridge over troubled water he knew he was onto something he knew that the song was going to be really big and and so did roy halley and everybody knew this was going to be a big, massive song. Or like when Paul McCartney wrote Let It Be, he thought, oh, my God, I've got a big one on my hands. Like yeah. he really knew it. Yeah. When Joni wrote Will Sides Now, he did, she didn't know it. No, no. So uh, in the book, it, w would it be fair to say that Joni is being very honest, unguarded, and uh, mm -hmm. maybe even a bit cynical? And, and, and that's kind of an understatement. Um, she's mm -hmm. so free mm -hmm. of, of a mouth with her lovers, the music and other musicians that almost mm -hmm. to the point of, you know, getting in trouble mm -hmm. again, reckless. Mm -hmm. She mm -hmm. is just that way, huh? She just, there is no filter. There's no, uh, it, it, at least that's what it comes across. Is that, is that what you observe? Well, she, she became increasingly that way. And so that's why I balanced my interviews with earlier interviews because she was more generous toward people earlier. Mm -hmm. And so I, I wanted p people to get the sense of the whole woman and not just the way she was, you know, in 2015 when she was trashing everybody. Well, would, do you think that was because she had a change of heart or is that because she became more comfortable with you or what do you think? Mm. No, no. I think she became increasingly bitter and was like cutting people out of her life. Uh -huh. Right and left. I mean, for example, well, the, when I first talked to her in 2007, she had not gone on record and called Bob Dylan a plagiarist. Right. And so when she started doing that with me, I was kind of taken aback because I thought she loved Bob. And I didn't realize that she wanted to do, go on record to the New York Times. <laughs> right. I mean, I didn't put it in my piece, but but I mean... It, it ended up surfing, surfacing elsewhere. And every, if, if anybody talks about Joni and Bob, that's the first thing they talk about is that she thinks that Bob is a plagiarist. Now. Right. And, and yeah, because she said, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, she said that to the Los Angeles Times. 
Well, I say terrible know. things about my family all the time. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's just one day, and then the next day I love them. You know, so yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, she's complicated, uh, and she's had many complicated relationships, and maybe it should be taken as that. Maybe not. You know, her one and only. You know, her, what, well, what mean, she wants on her epitaph or something like that. You know, even with the Dylan thing, is because she had such high standards for him. Yeah. Yeah. It's because she's, I mean, there, there weren't a lot of people that she thought highly of to begin with. Uh-huh. I mean, she said, you know, she, one of the reasons that she went on Rolling Thunder is because she loved Blood on the Tracks so much. And and she was disappointed in Desire, actually. She thought Desire was okay, but it was no Blood on the Tracks. Hmm. Well. And, and, and you know, um. You can't, you, you know, can't hit it out I, of the park I, every time. I mean, I, you know. Desire has many fans, <laughs> right. um, but but I mean I I love Desire actually, but I mean a lot of people love Desire. But, I know people who are just not a fan of uh, of Joni Mitchell's early work, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, loves uh, pretty much everything from Court and Spark on. Mm-hmm. You know, well, so. it's interesting when Joni did a box set called Love Has Many Faces, which was really the last time that she curated her work. She couldn't listen to anything before Blue. So, like the first three albums, she couldn't even listen to them. She didn't. She, she thought the songs were good, but she just didn't like her voice at that time. Oh well, it can be uh, off-putting in in some ways to s- some people. Um, you know, uh, you know, not not too. Well, I different think one from... of the things was that like she thought that she was. I mean, because when we really talked about it, it turned out that she actually did like. Um, the first album, Song to a Seagull, even though David Crosby didn't do a good job producing it, and it, it, there was a problem with the recording. But it was the the second and the third, Clouds and Ladies of the Canyon, she thought that um, she was too influenced by harmonizing with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Mm. Mm. So, so her, phrase, mm. her yeah. phrasing yeah. sounded like there's too much, and she, it made her uncomfortable. Which is interesting. So, so she was plagiarizing Crosby, Stills, and Nash vocal techniques. Well, I guess it's, it's because of her, her need for originality was so great. Right. Yes. Right. That, like, that. She, she couldn't listen to this voice that she thought was too influenced by them. Mm. Well, I've spent two weeks listening to just about nothing but uh, Joni Mitchell, and I can tell yeah. you that I, I, I love it all. Uh, and I... You know, I I wasn't a huge fan, uh, and I have mm. become a huge fan. Uh, oh, cool! Yeah, oh, yeah. that's really cool. So, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's really uh, I've I've been actually emotionally connected uh, to it. Oh, it's yeah. been, a, been, rather rare, been rather rare. Been rather rare. So um, that's the way to be connected. It's emotionally yes. right. Right. So let's let's talk about her music and why it is so unique. Um, yeah. she she's completely self taught and uh, she's no to create tunings and chords uh, so yes. much so there's a famous picture of Eric Clapton actually awed by her guitar playing that's right that's right that's right so how did she come um, about this well um, she had a weakness in her left hand from the polio so she tried to learn guitar from the Pete Seeker book it was the same book that that Dylan learned from mm-hmm and uh, but she couldn't get very far in it because of the weakness in her left hand, and so she, there's something in there called cotton picking for Elizabeth Cotton. Oh Elizabeth yes, Cotton, mm-hmm, was mm-hmm, it? Mm-hmm. It was a housekeeper for Pete Seeger's family, and so she she had this style 
is just um, like one five, one five, you know, mm-hmm. like that. Oh, and, and she couldn't. Piano's nearby. She, the piano's here, yeah. So and she, so she couldn't, she couldn't do it. And so um, when she met Eric Anderson, he showed her the open G tuning. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. that's that's but Keith Richards. I was going to say Keith Richards, famous famous with Keith, right? But that's it. He just did the one. He learned the one open tuning, and then he stopped. Right. Whereas she kept on developing, and I think that she ended up with a total of sixty-two tunings. Wow. And so when she would when she was playing clubs, she would maybe find like three songs that would fit a tuning, and then she would have to tune up, and it would take her a few minutes sometimes. Oh, that would and that so, would and kill so, an audience. Well, unless you're Joni Mitchell. So she would tell a story while she was tuning. Oh. And, of course, she was very easy to look at. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> she would use that charm, you know what I mean? And, right. And, and, and the mini dresses and all the rest of it. And, uh, to buy her time. Audience. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, it, it didn't take her long to tune a guitar. She could tune a guitar in a few seconds. Mm-hmm. But but to get to a specific tuning that took a little bit longer, yeah, and, and to get to one of her alternate tunings, and so, um, so the interesting thing with that is that uh, it was an unintended consequence, was was that alternate tunings have more resonance than standard tunings. Yes, yeah, some of the and some so of the strings will will drone on each other, right? That's right, and then the overtones are different. Mm-hmm. And so all of this creates a sound that doesn't sound like most people's music. So right away, you you know, you're hearing something that sounds like Joni Mitchell. It's, you know, it's one of her tunings. And so even people that don't know about music no. recognize the sounds different, even yeah. if they couldn't identify how it sounds different, they would realize that something different was going on. Yeah. 62 different tunings. Uh, mm-hmm. would, it w- will create a lot of originality to work with. Add that to, uh, you know, this unique voice uh, that she has. Yes. And she's got yes. quite a, she's got a quite a range, too. Even early on, you know, she, she does stay up in the, the soprano area, but she does uh, she does actually have quite a range uh, to begin with. Right. Uh, yes, of course. I mean, she was you know, a smoker since Yeah, I was going to say even before the four four packs a day uh, habit. Yeah. But and, uh and so, yeah. So you add those no, things she, together and you really do create a, a unique sound that, you know, people are attuned to. That's what they listen for is what's new, what's what's happening. Uh, and I have to add that like in some ways like the, before the cigarettes were bad for her singing and in some ways they were good for her singing because it it, it created more um some people find being on the high end like that to be somewhat cloying. Yeah. And, and they actually prefer a voice that has a little bit more... The husky uh, sound hus- to it. Husky right. sound, right. right. And so mm-hmm. that's why the the, joy, the voice on, you know, Hissing a Summer Lawn, Tejira. Yeah. Someone's Reckless Daughter, Mingus. I mean, that that voice is perfection to me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and she and she she still could get up there then too, but she but it it, it had already become more more sultry. So uh, lyrically, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, it only takes one or two readings uh, of just a, a few of her songs to realize that this is genius. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I know the remarkable. Word, it was, yeah, it was, I mean, just remarkable because one of the most surprising things about getting to know her was how uninterested she was in poetry. 
which for uh, someone who writes such poetic lyrics is shocking. But yeah, because she, she, she was wasn't a, much of a of an I I, I wouldn't call her educated. Uh, no, she wasn't. She wasn't uh, uh, academically inclined uh, in school. No. I know she never went to college, and in fact, I think that was part of the issue with uh, uh, her marriage to Chuck. Is you know he would lord that uh, education right. over her, right? Went to Principia College. Mm-hmm. <laughs> an English major at Principia College. But, but um, you know, when she and Leonard were an item, she said, Leonard, I've got to read all my book reports that were from classic comic books. <laughs> and, and Tolkien. And, and, <laughs> yeah, that, that came, yeah, Tolkien, exactly. Tolkien came when she was married to Chuck. Oh. That's when she got into those books. Mm-hmm. Um, That's later and, in life, right? Well, slightly. Yeah. And so... Uh, and he said, well, for somebody who hasn't read your writing very well, because, I mean, she, she meets Leonard in the summer of, of 67. So at that point, she's already written both sides now. She's already written The Circle Game. Right. She's already written some phenomenal songs, songs to a seagull, Urge for Going. And she did all these things without any real instruction. Again, completely self-taught. Uh, just, Completely just, just, just like born out of the... musical uh, abilities. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I, yes. I think it's. Yes. I think we're establishing that it's this independence, this uh, this desire to to be original above all things, uh, and pursuing that uh, consistently and constantly. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's true, um, and uh, I, I I feel like she got both the benefits and the and the punishments. That go with that. Of course, of course, yeah. But the uh, benefits were huge. There's no question. The benefits were. Oh, enormous. certainly in legacy. Um, the, the, you know, it's it's you know she she is in the pantheon because of it. Um, you know, oh yeah. Uh, there's just there's you know there 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 is no discussion of uh, the music of the latter half of the 20th century and not including right. Joni Mitchell in it. So so can you break down her various musical phases for me? Uh, you know, I, I might say there's the folk years, the blue period, uh, her jazz explorations, uh, and then electronics kind of turn in the in pursuits. And, and then she does like other things in the 80s uh, beyond just okay. music. Instead of the folk years, I would maybe call them the acoustic years. Oh, okay. Because the music wasn't folk music. Yeah, and the folky era it, kind of begun to wane uh, by the time. No, she but it wasn't just it. that. It was literally the kind of music that she was making was not. I mean, if, if anything, like Neil Young was using folk chords, uh-huh. even though everything he was doing was kind of rock. Even if it was acoustic, it was right acoustic mm-hmm. rock. But I mean, the, but the chords were these kind of simple triads. They're folk chords. Mm-hmm. When she was starting out in the clubs, before she'd written anything, right? She started. Her, she. I mean, she's an art student in, in Calgary, and she plays in a club called The Depression. Then she's playing songs that are out of the child ballad book, and they're folk songs, right? Nancy Whiskey and things right, like that, when right. Johnny mm-hmm. Comes Marching Home. Right, right. Like that. Mm-hmm. So those are folk songs. So once she writes Urge for Going, that, this, the chords in that song are not folk chords. You know, the, those, those chords come from someplace else. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, she's she's very much influenced by romantic music, this music that she didn't even know how to play, <laughs> but just just but just from hearing it, mm-hmm. you know, just you know, her favorite pieces of music uh, b- between childhood and when she first writes, you know, she she writes for Urge for Going at, in '65. She writes a song called Day After Day in '64. Um, but now, day after day has folk chords. 
If you hear that song, that is a folk song. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a child ballad. That sounds like something that John Baez would sing, mm-hmm. that song. But but 65, at, when she writes Urge for Going, which I guess is in the spring of wow. 65. Or just, so. af- just after the birth of her daughter. After the birth of her daughter, and she marries Chuck, and then she's miserable, and she writes Urge for Going. She's trying to escape already. <laughs> and and, and uh, but, 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 but those chords are not folk chords already. That's that, that they're they're much more eccentric than that, and the shape of the melodies are not folk melodies, right? And the lyrics aren't really like folk lyrics either. Now, day after day, yes, all of that is a folk song, but by the time you get to Urge for Going, no, and then you and then you get into '66 um, um, when she, you know, that that's her first major year of songwriting is '66. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, I'm just going to show you an example of what I mean. This the song, um, Song to a Seagull, right? The title track of her first album. It's, 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 it's built on fourths. This is so not folk music. These are jazz chords. These are modal chords. These are chords that are, that are inspired by um, her listening to Miles Davis' Kind of Blue, right? Mm-hmm. And so... So actually, she was incorporating some jazz into her definitely. very, very earliest work. Yeah, definitely. Uh-huh. And so that's yeah. but but you would still say that the, that the songs to a seagull and clouds mm-hmm. kind of are that sort of first period, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd say it's an acoustic period, and uh, of course, those those two albums. Are both only guitar. She, she has a piano part on Night in the City, but yeah, mostly mostly her guitar. Those are guitar songs. By the time you get to the third album, yeah, Ladies, Ladies in the Canyon, the Canyon yeah. like half of that album, they're piano songs. Mm-hmm. And um, and then of course Blue really, is. You know, now you see, we ha- we, with the first four albums, because she had this huge burst of songwriting beginning mm-hmm. in '66, and it continues in '67. And so she, and, and when she makes "Song to a Seagull," she doesn't put her hits on it. The closest thing to a hit on that song is "Cactus Tree." You know, she had already written um, "Circle Game." Why? Why there. did she hold those back? I think it's because she had this idea for a concept of, oh. um, of you know, like like Tommy. "Song to a Seagull." Right, right. Yeah, because it had like, um, "I came to the city." It was on the first side, and then out into the seaside. Was side two. Oh, New York and, and L.A. Right. Right, or like New York and then like seaside songs. It wasn't. I guess it was. It's not really about L.A. the city, but it's about the ocean. Uh huh. You know, like like song to a seagull is like about a seagull. Right. You know? Right. Well. You know, it's interesting that she didn't. I mean, it's sort of like when when Dylan made his first album. Um, the, the only the only original on it is song to Woody. Right which is based on a Woody Guthrie melody and which itself is based on something else. And I, he, he felt like he didn't want to give everything away, but he had already written some of the songs that ended up on free Willin'. 
And so Joni had all of these songs that she was sitting on, and she would disperse them um, onto clouds and then onto Ladies of the Canyon. Like the first song on Ladies of the Canyon is Conversation. That's an early song. That's a 1967 song. She, she sat on that for a while. And then finally, when she makes Blue, she finally records Little Green, which had been around since 66. Now, did she did she keep these and improve them, or were they just fully formed and she just kept them? They back? were fully formed. I mean, she made a change in the in the keys, but uh, she made a change in a couple of the chords in Little Green. But I thought it was a lateral move, mm-hmm. actually, because mm-hmm. um, I like both of the versions. I and I, I couldn't say which one is better because I mm-hmm. like them both. Maybe I like the first version better, but you know, but they're you know, it's a great song either way. But. Um, so no, she wasn't really revising. I think with Little Green, it was because she was singing about giving up her daughter, and so maybe she was holding on to it. Right, right. Uh, or maybe she felt it was too personal, and she was afraid to release it. And then she, and then she recorded. Yeah, maybe. And then she recorded um, uh, "Urge for Going." It had been a hit for George Hamilton the Fourth, and Tom Rush had also recorded it. Right. Um, and, and she had that as a B side. Um, for You Turn Me On, I'm a Radio. And that was the end of her using those early songs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so then by the time you get to For the Roses, those are all, you know, written at the same time. And same for Court and Spark, all of those songs were written. At the time. There, she's, at the time. She's used the, up yeah. uh, what, she's, what she had uh, started back in the mid-60s. Right. And then by the time, and then when you get to, you know, there were some songs. I sing of Summer Lawns that she, you know, like Dreamland was originally a demo from that period that she included. Um, so, so you, you mentioned Court and Spark and uh, Hissing of Summer Lawns, and then also Hajira. That's that's when she's really working closely with Jaco Pastorius, right? Starting with Hajira, I mean, amazingly, Jaco Pastorius is only on four tracks on that album, and yet he—it sounds like he's dominating it. Very transformative for her, huh? Very. I mean, but really, the, all of this started with the, the LA Express. So, Russ Kunkel had played drums with her. Yeah, this on, was her backing band, right? Yeah. So, so Russ Kunkel played on Blue, which had very minimal accompaniment, but he played drums and congas on a few tracks. And, um, you know, Stephen Stills is on it. James Taylor is on it. Uh, but it's pretty minimal. Sneaky Pete's on a track. It's pretty minimal accompaniment. And then for the Roses, you know, the, um, Tom Scott does read, read parts on some of the tracks. And again, you have Russ Kunkel. And, um, and then she asked Russ Kunkel to play in Court and Spark. And he said to her, you know, you should get, you should get jazz musicians. They're the only ones that are going to understand what you're doing. So she'd move so, beyond the the rock session players at the time. I mean, she could, especially the bass players couldn't didn't understand what she was asking for, and so um, or, or they would just they would turn it into something that was like a professional product, and it wasn't really what she wanted. This right. was sort of like when Paul Simon did um, a song on Bridge Over Twelve Water called "Why Don't You Write Me," and he wanted it to be a ska song. And the LA studio musicians didn't understand what he was talking about. Ska, so what's that? Right. So, yeah, they didn't know what it was. And so then he he's like, "Okay, I'm going to do it for real next time." So he goes to Jamaica when he's making Mother and Child Reunion in search of ska players, and then they're like, "Hey, man, nobody's doing ska anymore." 
Uh, what, what are they doing now? Reggae, right. Doing, yeah, and he says, and he says what's reggae? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they make the yeah. record. Anyway, and so, and so, so Russ Conkle said you, you should work with jazz musicians. And so she had worked with Tom Scott. On, he did the read parts on um, For the Roses. And so um, he was in a band, the LA Express. And these were some of like the most sought after musician, uh, studio musicians at the in time in Los right. Angeles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so she went to this club in Studio City called the Baked Potato and she saw them and she hired them. And she sang every part to them because she'd never done it before. All the, all the musical the, parts. She would just sing every part, every horn part, everything. She mm-hmm. would sing them. And uh, and of course the album came out great, but she realized after that that she could, if she had musicians of the caliber, she could cut them a certain amount of slack and not do that. And so she didn't do that after that. And um, after that, she would the thing that she would do is if she was bringing in a new musician, she would just have them listen to the track, and then she would just say, "Play what you feel," and that was it. If you had the right level of musician, that's all you needed, mm-hmm. and you needed to give them freedom, just like how, just like she wanted freedom from a record producer. You know, she realized she didn't need to be a benign, benign dictator like that. Not when you get musicians that good. Yeah, yeah. Let them let them fly, and you'll yeah. get, you'll, the returns will be fantastic. I right. mean, I talked to Larry Carlton, and you know, 1967 was quite a year for Larry Carlton because he he played um, the the solo on Steely Dan, Kid Charlemagne. That's him. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the Crusaders yeah. were huge. Yeah. You know. I mean, he was he was so in demand. I mean, he did, he didn't tour with Joni because his yeah, his so studio, well, his studio yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Stay, stay home right. and make the money. Yeah, right. Definitely. Stay home and make the money. That's right. right. And oh, so yeah. uh, Robin Ford played guitar on a tour on the next two on the two tours that followed. Um, but um, so yes, um, so he he's on. Well, I mean, he of course he, he was in the LA Express, and so he's on all of Court and Spark. And then, and then in '76, he's on five tracks on his Hero. I share, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he, um, he and Jocko never saw each other because he came in during the day, and Jocko worked at and night. John Guerin came right. in at night, uh, uh. and then they, they didn't see each other at all. Mm-hmm. So jo- Joni was Joni had bolted from a tour that she was on for the, for the hissing of Summer Lawns. And so she found herself taking a road trip across the country. And so she stopped by Robin Ford's place, this young guitar player who played on the Miles of Isles band and and also played on um, Hissing of Summer Lawns. Yeah, who goes on and to his own solo career, yes. He has this, you know, he's, the, the, the biggest gig that he has after that is he plays with Miles in 86 mm. in the Tutu band. Mm-hmm. Not not the greatest of Miles bands, of course, but still, still Miles um, Davis, <laughs> still Miles Davis. <laughs> right. so, so that's what you could call him in that period. Still Miles Davis. <laughs> right. uh, but anyway, um, so he had just gotten Jaco Pastorius's album. It was a brand new album that had just come out, and it was very much talked about. And it was produced by Herbie Hancock, and Herbie was on it, and all these other amazing people are on it. And so, like people in the jazz world were really talking about it. It, it was so the, the whole idea of the cultural share was so different then, mm-hmm. right? That something like that could come in on Columbia Records, and but some people would still not know about it. Do you know what I mean? 
Oh yeah. And, and, yeah. And you so, have to be in the know, right? All right. You have to be in the know, and so yeah. and so like and so um, Robin Ford played Joni um, portrait of Tracy, and uh, she said, "I'm going to have to look this guy up next time I record," and she did. And he was playing with Phyllis Diller at the time. Oh my god! And I think. And I think he had just joined Weather Report, was about to join Weather Report. He joined Weather Report that year. Mm-hmm. I think this was, I guess, right before he joined Weather Report. And, yeah, the um, famous jazz fusion band, Weather Report. Yes, Joe mm-hmm. Zawinul, Wayne Shorter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Wayne Shorter. Right? Uh, they, they, they were a huge band in the 70s. And, yeah. um, and so, uh, yeah, and so he, he played on uh, Coyote and... Um, the title track of Hijira and Black Crow and um, Refuge of the Roads. He put on those. And and uh, it was exactly what she'd been dreaming of, which was the bass as a contrapuntal instrument. Mm-hmm. The bass as a melodic instrument. She felt like she could like leave the one suspended. Mm. He didn't need to be reminded where one was. She knew where one was. Mm-hmm. She wanted the bass to be, to stimulate her, and not just be there, just to hold down the beat, right? Holding or holding down the the tonic, right? And, and and you know, walking obvious notes in the scale that to her was just so dead, and so you know, she got to actually hear somebody like innovate on an instrument in her presence. Wow, it was exactly what she was hoping for, and Jocko. Um, you know, Jocko was bipolar, and uh, so he was just high on life. <laughs> on certain days. <laughs> on that, well, on that session, on that yeah. session, he was high on life. And, uh, you know, once he started doing cocaine, that was, he was gone. Oh, oh. It was a real, it was a real shame. Well, it's a people I mean, I mean, he, I mean, he still did great work with her after that, but he, it was never as pure as it was on that session. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In his year yeah. in seventy six, yeah, seventy six. So the book does go deeper into uh, you know, I mean that that is her you know her most successful years, uh, you know, definitely mm-hmm. sixty eight to seventy six. Uh, mm-hmm. But but in the eighties, uh, she gets uh, a little uh, early electronics, and uh, you mm-hmm. you go into that all all the way until you know she kind of stops recording in uh, in ninety seven, as we talked about earlier, uh, and then to come back one last time in 2007 um so it, we're, and we're, we're running out of time here but um and i you know i really appreciate you uh giving us these these, these wonderful stories of, of oh, her my pleasure. so uh, what what is what, what might be or what just comes to mind if i ask you what's your favorite stories from her own lips that still makes you chuckle or a little aghast oh my you know, her Miles Davis story was really remarkable. Um, she dreamed of working with him. And um, so her boyfriend, Don Elias, knew Miles. Um, he played drums. He played the trap kit on uh, on um, Bitches Brew. Oh, wow. Uh, mm-hmm. Miles runs the voodoo down. And so he brought her over. This is when he was locked up. You know, he 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 retired from music mm-hmm. between seventy five and eighty one. He said he wouldn't come out until someone gave him a million dollars. He was doing a lot of drugs and just it was really sad. 
And uh, so it was during that period. And um, so she was left alone in a room with him. And he he tried to make a move on her, but he was so messed up. And so, like, he, like, he tried to, he grabbed her breast, and then he fell, and then had a death-like grasp on her ankles. <laughs> and, she had to, and she had to yell for Don to come in to get him off. Wow, a case and, of sexual harassment right there. So. I know. See, this is obviously <laughs> me too, long time Tony. Of, me too. This is a long time before me too. Uh, but uh, she couldn't believe it because Don could get so insanely jealous. Oh, yeah. And yet he was pimping her out to Miles. That was pretty crazy. That um, is that is uh, a little a little chuckle and a bit of a guest yeah, right yeah. there, definitely. Yeah. So, uh, have you heard what Miss Mitchell thinks of your take on her life? Um, she was never one to read books about herself, right? But since she had an aneurysm, I think that people are trying to keep upsetting news away from her. So, I mean, next time I'm in Los Angeles, I'm going to try to see her, and you know, maybe she'll want to see me, maybe she won't. Who knows? Um, but, um, hey, I, 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 I mean, from, from what I gather from what I took away from this is, uh, it's an honest treatment of, uh, you know, her and uh, nobody can capture, you know, a a person's life into a single book, but, um, Mm. but you did a good job of, of showing, uh, you know, both sides of of a person Mm. and, and let's face it, every human is, is complicated in, in, in angels and demons. And I mean, it really could have gone on forever. Um, I had to. I, I had to stop at a certain point. Right. I've, um, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of people about this book since it came out. And every time I talk about it, I feel like something new surfaces in a way because there's always something new to think about with her. She's so fascinating. And in fact, it, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that I'll feel that way about something again, but, uh, right now it's, it's hard to quite imagine it. And, um, and so, this was just such an inexhaustible subject for me. And it's always interesting talking about it because there's always something new to think about um, or things come out in a different way every time. Right. Um, and so, you know, obviously it's such an honor and, I, and not that she would notice or care, but I, I do hope that this moves her, her catalog you know, people downloading or however they buy it or people who buy vinyl since there are people who buy vinyl. Yeah. And, and yes. quite Jenny's a research much of, going on. Right. Yes. And she's very much a vinyl artist. And so, I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, things are just lost to streaming. Although I wonder if like artists get streaming points depending on the contract they get. Uh, I think everything is in flux right now. Uh, right. And, uh, unfortunately, you know, like all things, uh, usually technology brings a double-edged sword. Um, you know, it makes uh, the work accessible to more people, uh, a next generation. But at the same time, it's crowded out there. It's very, very crowded. Oh, it really is. No, it's, it's – and the, the artists get screwed. Yeah. Um, it's great for the consumer. It's it's terrible for the artist. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, I mean, I, I just um, – but anyway – yeah, I, I mean, also because there are various projects that are in the works that are based on this book, and so I'm I'm hoping that that will bring a whole resurgence of interest to 
really the generation that are taking my classes. Well, it certainly worked yeah. on me. Um, I've oh, had good. a wonderful time over the last couple of weeks listening to uh, to Joni while I uh, I read your uh, your, uh, your. I mean, it's just like it's a wonderful thing to spread, uh-huh. and mm-hmm. and it's you know it it gives you a great high with no side effects. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Who needs the cocaine? It, that you don't need it. That's right. <laughs> you know, I mean, because I mean, I mean, that, I mean, it's true that you know the the you know music can produce dopamine in the brain and all these things. And oh I, yeah. And I, Oh, so yeah. I think it's completely true. I mean, in fact, there's this guy named Dan Levitin is a neuroscientist who wrote a book called This Is Your Brain on Music. And uh, and he's friends with Joni, and Joni's in the book. And uh, he, was a, he was a good source for me, actually. I think of another Joni story. Um, okay, here, this, here's an elaborate one. Okay, this, you, this, um, this is the last one, so we'll, we'll take this okay. one. Um, let's have it. Okay, this is so elaborate that I had to cut it down for the bug. <laughs> I, I, so, and the, like the real punchline of the story ended up not making it into the book because the whole thing was too convoluted. But this is a crazy story. So Joni records Chalk Mark in a Rainstorm in Peter Gabriel's studio in oh, Bath. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, uh, in Bath. Right, right. Okay. So Larry Klein, her husband. Woman. Is it called Woman or? The, the Wool Hall. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Will Hall, the W O O L Will Hall, right? Um, and and so Larry Klein, her husband at the time, played bass on So, uh huh. And he did, and he refused to accept payment because he admired him so much, and that was a pretty reckless thing, since that album sold more than six million copies. Yes, and and Sledgehammer was, I, I believe, the most shown video on MTV. Isn't that something? At the time, yeah. Is is it still? Is it uh, probably? Uh, yes, yeah. I mean, because yeah, they you don't play videos anymore. You're right. <laughs> they don't, but you think it would be Michael Jackson or something. But it's, it's no, it's that no. I, yeah, well, it was a, a very, very unique. It was a great video, but video. I would have thought it was the most shown. Into that, but anyway, yeah, but it was. Yeah, anyway, I, so I, he, I know. So, I I could see Thriller, what you would think would be the. the you would think it'd be yeah. Thriller. That's what yeah. I was thinking. Yeah, but anyway, no. so. And and but so Peter Gabriel is a mensch, mm-hmm. and so he wanted to make it up to Larry by letting Joni record this album for free in Will Hall, and and so and they did a duet for that album called My Secret Place. So Peter Gabriel was asked to play on this Amnesty International concert, yeah, in the summer of '86, right, right, and he'd never done a group show before. And here he was sitting with the woman who wrote Woodstock. So he thought that she would have some insight into this. <laughs> and she said, did they ask you to play acoustic? And he said, yes. And she said, don't do it. He who plays acoustic dies. <laughs> she said, you, you're going to want to have your band there with you. And you're going to want to have your own sound people. And he said, why? And he, she, she said, think about it. Do you want Phil Collins to be the one who shines? There are going to be people trying to sabotage you. Wow. Okay? Mm-hmm. And, she, and, and he says, Joni, your lightness is a puppet to cover your darkness. <laughs> and, and she says, oh, my God, you're so naive. So anyway, the, so that Conspiracy of Hope tour plays Los Angeles before they play New Jersey at the, at the Meadowlands. They play Los Angeles. So she goes. And afterwards, she says to him, you know what? There's wonderful camaraderie here. And forget what I said. Okay. 
And so what happens? Well, once the TV cameras there are there, it's, it's, everything changes. Right. And and uh, and the police are getting back together, and they're moved to the top of the bill. And um, Pete Townsend's father dies, so he has to not be there. And so Joni then is asked to be way too far up in the bill for 1986 for Joni. Mm-hmm. And, and and so so she doesn't have her own equipment. She doesn't have. Her people. Do you see where this is going? Yep. She's she's stuck in the the uh, in the uh, the prophecy that she made. That's right. And so um, she so her her, um, makeshift dressing room is right by Lou Reed. And so she asked Lou Reed's guitar player to borrow his guitar to rehearse. And so she puts it in the alternate tuning to rehearse, and then she puts it back in the standard, gives it back to the guitar player. And the guitar goes out of tune on live television. <laughs> and, and, and she hears Lou Reed angrily firing him for this. The guitar player. And I said, yes. <laughs> and I said, I said, I said, Lou Reed could tell? <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. but anyway. Um, Have you heard so, rock and roll animal, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, or metal machine music. Or whatever, yeah. And so, so anyway, um, and then when she comes on, she's playing acoustic. And she's playing a song called The, the, the Three Great Stimulants from Dog Eat Dog. And nobody knows it. And she'd come on and sing her hits. People would have liked it. Yeah, yeah. And she'd come on and sing Woodstock. People oh, would have liked it. That, perfect venue and event. Yeah. And uh, it fits, fits the whole point. And, uh, it really yeah, did, yeah they, they would have loved it. But no, she comes on and she does three great stimulants. And so while she's doing this, she gets pelted with ice on live television. Okay? Oh. And you can see it on YouTube. And... And then afterwards, she said, hey, listen, I'm not that bad. You did quit pitching shit up here. <laughs> and so that was, that was just the whole crazy thing. It was like all these things that she warned Peter. And, of course, Peter Gabriel had a wonderful experience. And oh, of course. Yeah. Beak, I mean, Beak-o. I saw that I've on live television. Oh, yes. Yeah. I yeah. saw that on oh. live television when I was oh, 13. Yeah. Oh, I, I've been yeah. in the presence while with that song, uh, not in the stadium, but in a, in a smaller venue uh, back in the day. Oh, but, man. Uh, yeah. No, oh. He, he really, he, was a, he had a great triumph. So that's, I don't know, that's a crazy Johnny Mitchell story. Getting like, pelted with ice at a stadium yes. because she refused uh, to play the one song that really should have been played after she told Peter Gabriel, hey, don't do this. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Uh, that was such a crazy story. Yeah. But, but she, she's, she's quite a storyteller. Um, you know, because like the way that the whole irony, so like it's so elaborate. You know, like you couldn't put it in a novel. No, 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 no. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, you, you wouldn't believe it if a, a screenwriter wrote it. Uh, exactly. Right, right, yeah. right, right, right. Well, David Yaffe, so thanks so much for uh, for being with us today. On My Deeper pleasure. Thanks for having me. Sets of circumstance. I'm up all night in the studios, and you're up early on your ranch. You'll be brushing out a broodmare's tail while the sun is ascending, and I'll just be getting home with my. So, we covered a lot of different ground in that interview. Amazing. 
our warmest appreciation goes out to Professor David Yaffe, author of Reckless Daughter, A Portrait of Joni Mitchell. The ebook is available online from all the usual suspects, or if you prefer, you can purchase the hardcover version at your local brick and mortar bookseller. All you diggers, thank you for stopping by and come back real soon. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Thank you again for listening and keep up the rockin'. sure looks bad they won't give peace a chance that was just a dream some of us had still a lot of lions to see but i wouldn't want to stay here it's too old and cold and settled in its ways here all the california california coming home i'm gonna see the folks i dig i'll even kiss the sunset Hey diggers, Christian Swain here with a short pause for a great cause. We believe music education for young people is an investment in a better future for all of us. If you listen to our podcasts, chances are you agree. Little Kids Rock has transformed the lives of more than 650,000 public school students by bringing music education into their schools. Little Kids Rock trains teachers in underfunded schools to teach kids the music they love. From the Beatles to Bruno Mars, Led Zeppelin to Lady Gaga, Chuck Berry to Chance the Rapper. Little Kids Rock has become a national movement to restore, expand, and innovate music education in public schools across America. Visit littlekidsrock.org and learn more about how you can help put music where it belongs, in our schools. Thank you, and let's keep up the rocking right into the next generation. Deeper Digs in Rocks, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.